tell God all of my troubles when I get home. Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Great White North, Emigration to Canada. Oh, Canada. For many Americans, it's a place of shivering cold, but also the metaphorical warmth of polite people, clean streets, pristine wilderness, and free healthcare. Every four years, right after each presidential election, plenty of Americans threaten to emigrate to Canada. Most don't actually do it, though some Americans do move there every year, and there have been modest but noticeable spikes in these numbers following victories by George W. Bush and Donald Trump. The Vietnam War also saw large numbers of Americans escaping to Canada, evading the draft, or deserting the U.S. Army. Some of those immigrants were African-American, and they were, in a sense, carrying on an important tradition. In the 19th century, the Underground Railroad famously brought escaped slaves to Canada, and even further back there was the arrival in Nova Scotia of the Black Loyalists following the Revolutionary War. Another influx followed the War of 1812, when once again, the British promised freedom to those who would join their side of the conflict. Those who came to Nova Scotia at that time became known as the Black Refugees. At the times of these previous migrations to Nova Scotia, slavery was actually legal in Canada. But as in the northern states, and in contrast to the American South, the Caribbean, and certain parts of Latin America, slavery was never that significant to the economic development of the French and British colonies that became Canada. From the 1790s onward, gradual abolition through statutes and judicial decisions limited slavery. By the time it was finally abolished throughout the British Empire in 1834, there were very few slaves still left in Canada. So Canada was attractive for those seeking freedom even before 1834. Peter Williams Jr., mentioned in episode 41, raised money to help a large group of African Americans who left Cincinnati, Ohio, after a major riot attacking black residents there in 1829. This group established the Wilberforce Colony in what is now Ontario, then the colony of Upper Canada. We previously discussed Williams's repudiation of the American Colonization Society, despite his earlier support for his friend Paul Cuffey's plans for bringing people to Africa. As it turns out, he expressed that opposition to the ACS at a meeting for the benefit of the Wilberforce colony. So, while an important theme of his speech was that African Americans should not have to leave the United States, he also argued that God in his good providence has opened for such of us as may choose to leave these states an asylum in the neighboring British province of Canada. Emigration to Canada reached its zenith, however, in the 1850s, in the wake of the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act. With this law, arrival in the free northern states was no longer a guarantee of freedom for escaped slaves. Even those born free in the north were no longer safe. Thousands of fugitives and emigrants poured into Canada during the time between the law's passage in 1850 and the sparking of the Civil War in 1861. One of the most famous was Mary Ann Shad, also known by her married name, Mary Ann Shad Carey. This remarkably accomplished woman had interesting ideas on securing freedom through emigration, as did another figure who spent time in Canada in the 1850s. He was Samuel Ringgold Ward, already mentioned in episode 49, as a classmate of Henry Highland Garnett 
at the African Free School. The two of them will be our main characters in this episode, but we'll also revisit the work of Martin Delaney. As we noted in the episode focusing on him, he too spent time living in Canada in the 1850s. He saw relocation to Canada and what African Americans ought to do once they were there quite differently than Shad and Ward, so he will offer us an illuminating contrast. Shad and Ward were collaborators of an interesting sort. Shad remains a figure often commemorated in Canada, especially during Black History Month, and is best remembered today for editing her own newspaper, The Provincial Freeman. When it first appeared, though, and for the first year or so of its existence, its editor was identified as Ward, who had previous experience editing newspapers in the United States. From the beginning, this attribution masked the fact that Shad was the true editor. Eventually, the charade was dropped, and she was acknowledged as the sole force behind the paper. Later, she would again claim to be handing over the reins to another male editor. Rather ironically, it was in an editorial, written to mark this supposed change in leadership, that she reflected on her own pioneering role. To colored women, she wrote, we have a word. We have broken the editorial ice, whether willingly or not, for your class in America. So go to editing as many of you as are willing and able, and as soon as you may, if you think you are ready. Even after this apparent farewell, Shad continued to preside over the provincial freemen. But it will not be her tireless journalistic efforts that occupy our attention in this episode. Instead, we'll be focusing on her most famous piece of writing, a pamphlet she published less than a year after arriving in Canada. Its title is so long that in northern Canada, you could start reading it before sunrise on a winter's day and not finish until after sunset. A plea for emigration, or Notes of Canada West, in its moral, social, and political aspect, with suggestions respecting Mexico, the West Indies, and Vancouver's Island for the information of colored emigrants. We'll shorten this to a plea for emigration, although scholars sometimes use Notes of Canada West as the short title. Where, you may ask, is Canada West? Actually, this is what we now call Ontario, as opposed to Canada East, which was the name of modern-day Quebec. In keeping with the usage of the time, Shad refers to them together as the Canadas. Shad herself did not initially intend to be one of the colored emigrants of her title. She was born free in Delaware in 1823, and had been working as a teacher when she journeyed to Toronto to attend a black-organized anti-slavery convention in September of 1851. She was so impressed that she decided not to return. She moved to Windsor and opened a school, receiving support from the American Missionary Association. It was while living and teaching in Windsor that she had her Plea for Emigration published in Detroit in June of 1852. The little book's primary aim is to acquaint the reader with all possibly relevant facts about Canada as a place to live for African Americans who are seeking to escape the United States. Climate, soil, crops, the price of land, opportunities for employment, places of worship, education, political rights, and so on. If Tim Horton's Donuts had existed at the time, you can be sure she would have mentioned them. Shad also evaluates Mexico, the British colonies of the Caribbean, and other places, including Vancouver Island, which would of course eventually become part of Canada, as alternative destinations for emigrants. She concludes that Canada West is the most suitable destination for black emigrants. In the book's final paragraph, she declares that extensive emigration by free black Americans will do more to fight slavery than staying in the United States. 
she depicts it as a form of peaceful protest that is more dignified than what she derides as a miserable scampering from state to state seeking crumbs of freedom that the pro-slavery forces may sweep away at any moment. We find a similar, but in some ways less optimistic, assessment in Samuel Ringgold Ward's Autobiography of a Fugitive Negro, published in London in 1855. Ward was born enslaved in Maryland in 1817, but was only two years old when his parents escaped north to freedom. A licensed preacher, he gained fame as an abolitionist lecturer before the event that resulted in his leaving the United States for Canada, the Jerry Rescue. A man named William Henry, whose nickname was Jerry, had been arrested in Syracuse, New York, and was in danger of being sent back to slavery in accordance with the Fugitive Slave Act. A mob, encouraged by Ward and others, stormed the building where he was being held and liberated him. Ward had already been planning to move to Canada anyway, but thanks to his participation in the Jerry Rescue, it was indeed as a fugitive from the law that he settled in Toronto in October of 1851. Ward quickly got involved with the Anti-Slavery Society of Canada, lecturing and organizing branches of the organization in various places in Canada West. Then in the spring of 1853, the society sent Ward to lecture and raise money in England. His stay there lengthened well beyond what was initially projected. It lasted about two years, and it's during this time that he wrote his autobiography. He never returned to Canada, moving instead to Jamaica, where he spent the remainder of his life. The fact that Ward wrote in England, likely aware that he would not return to Canada, is pertinent in contrasting his discussion of the Black Canadian experience with Shad's. Given their collaboration, it's no surprise that they agreed on many things. Both viewed Canada as a land of legal equality ennobled by the values of British aristocratic culture. Both called for Black emigrants in Canada to integrate with white Canadians rather than build separate communities. They were on the same side of certain intellectual and practical controversies among Black leadership in Canada. But where Shad treats coming to Canada as an escape, not just from slavery, but from anti-Black racism itself, Ward identifies such racism as a common and systemic problem in Canada. Shad first addresses the question of Canadian racism in the section of her plea for emigration dealing with labor and trades. She claims that in Canada, all trades are patronized by whomsoever carries on, no man's complexion affecting his business. Then, in the same paragraph, she provides an explanation of Canada's superiority. There is no degraded class to identify him with, therefore every man's work stands or falls according to merit, not as is his color. This comment reveals much about Shad's understanding of the nature of racism and how it operates in the United States. The very existence in the United States of chattel slavery as a legally condoned institutionalized practice results in the general stigmatizing of black people, no matter their status as free or slave. For Shad, racism is truly systemic, a matter of interlocking parts in which one part, specifically slavery in the South, affects other parts, creating a society in which African Americans cannot expect to be judged fairly. By contrast, she considers the situation in Canada to be completely free of racism. She tells us, for instance, that her aim is to set forth the advantage of a residence in a country in which chattel slavery is not tolerated and prejudice of color has no existence whatever. When she does acknowledge that differential and negative treatment of black people may be encountered in Canada, she treats it as non-systemic in character. Thus she writes, 
colored persons have been refused entertainment in taverns, invariably of an inferior class, and on some boats distinction is made, but in all cases it is that kind of distinction that is made between poor foreigners and other passengers on the cars and steamboats of the northern states. So if you're a black person being discriminated against in Canada, you can at least comfort yourself that it's because you're poor or from another country, not because you're black. Shad claims that Canadian social relations are structured by an aristocratic, class-based differentiation derived from the old country, as opposed to racism. She writes, There is no approach to Southern chivalry, nor the sensitive democracy prevalent at the North, but there is an aristocracy of birth, not of skin, as with Americans. Jane Rhodes writes in her biography of Shad that a plea for immigration is an unabashed propaganda tract that exaggerated the benefits of the Canadian haven while ignoring many endemic problems. And indeed, one may suspect that Shad is willfully downplaying the problems faced by black emigrants rather than just telling it like she sees it. Yet she makes observations about race and racism that are worth considering, even if we take her to be anticipating the donut makers at Tim Hortons by sugarcoating things quite a bit. Commenting on how black emigrants should prepare themselves mentally for what they will encounter in Canada, she writes, It is an easy matter to make out a case of prejudice in any country. We naturally look for it, and the conduct of many is calculated to cause unpleasant treatment and to make it difficult for well-mannered persons to get comfortable accommodations. There is a medium between servility and presumption that recommends itself to all persons of common sense, of whatever ranks or complexion, and if colored people would avoid the two extremes, there would be but few cases of prejudices to complain of in Canada. Shad's prediction about the rarity of prejudice may seem over-optimistic, but it's not so easy to dismiss her point that we can make mistakes about how we ourselves are being treated. Not every perceived case of race-based unfairness is genuinely unfair or race-based. Just as a servile disposition renders one shamefully willing to put up with racist incidents, a tendency towards presumption can result in unnecessary confrontations over wholly imagined slights. Shad suggests that we need to aim for an Aristotelian golden mean between the excess of presumption and the deficiency of servility. Ward, by contrast, thinks that Canadian racism is far from rare. He discusses this in the context of explaining the usefulness of anti-slavery activism in Canada. Having discussed factors related to Canada's shared border with the United States, such as how often pro-slavery Yankees come into Canada to visit or even settle, Ward turns to some more unwelcome facts. There is firstly pro-slavery feeling on the part of British-born subjects, and secondly the more general problem of Canadian Negro hate. His use of this expressive phrase helps to remind us that the term racism would not enter common usage until the 1930s. Regarding support of slavery, some of those who openly expressed it in Canada were, he says, heretofore planters in the West Indies, still bitter about abolition in the British Empire. He also speaks of Canadians who have familial or economic ties to the slaveholding American South, or even just fond memories of travel to the South. Both of these points place Canada in a larger global context. If Shad was right to define racism in purely systemic terms, she should not have overlooked the systemic ties binding Canada to the broader social context of the English-speaking world. Ward begins the second part of his discussion with a surprising claim. Canadian Negro haters are the very worst of their class. 
He proceeds to describe a number of cases of discrimination in public accommodations, including his own humiliating experiences in Hamilton in December of 1851. He was denied a seat on a horse-drawn bus, and when he nonetheless managed to reach his hotel, he was refused a room. Two cases like this, claims Ward, I have not known in the States for 20 years. Ward's frankness about racism in Canada seems to make him the polar opposite of Shad, but like her, he picks up on the importance of class relations in Canada. For him, social hierarchy provides a context for understanding Canadian racism. Negro hate abounds, he tells us, among the lowest, the least educated of all the white population. Their racism, according to Ward, is directly related to their ignorance. They know but little, next to nothing, of what are liberal enlightened views and genteel behavior. For all the discrimination he's seen north of the border, none of it involved a perpetrator who could claim the title of gentleman. Either that class do not participate in the feeling, or their good sense and good taste and good breeding forbid its appearance. Perhaps the elite do internally harbor racist sentiments, but they are also endowed with enough self-restraint not to let these sentiments undermine their good manners. This might look like the 19th century version of Americans marveling at how polite Canadians are, the kind of people who apologize when you walk into them on the street, even though they were standing still, and then offer you a donut. But in fact, Ward epitomizes another phenomenon, sometimes called African-American Anglophilia. Ward writes, I do not expect anyone to understand how great is my pleasure in saying that, so far as my experience goes, and that is considerable, the British gentleman is a gentleman everywhere and under all circumstances. Therefore, in every town of Canada, and especially in Toronto, I see what I saw in but extremely few and exceptional cases in the States, namely that among gentlemen, the black takes just the place for which he is qualified, as if his color were similar to that of other gentlemen as if there were no negro-crushing country hard by, as if there were no negro-hating lower classes in their midst. A scholar named Eliza Tamarkin has written on the love of all things British among African-American abolitionists. She argues that Ward puts Anglophilia as it exists among white Americans to novel social use because he offers the allure of social difference as what whites have to gain by assuming a British liberality on matters of race. Tamarkin is certainly onto something here, but probably draws her point too narrowly by suggesting that white Americans constitute the primary audience for Ward's remarks. He's certainly encouraging white Americans to be more British, but also calling for white Canadians to multiply the power of their Britishness in light of the real problem of Canadian Negro hate. And remember, his book was published in London, so he's also calling for the British themselves to continue and further extend the moral leadership he ascribes to them. Ward confronts the harsh reality of racism in Canada in a way that Shad does not, but his solution is to affirm the very aristocracy she pointed out as the only true source of discrimination in Canada. Shad and Ward also agree that it would be counterproductive to build specifically black institutions in Canada. In a section of A Plea for Emigration on Religion, Shad reports, I was forcibly struck when at Toronto with the contrast the religious community there presented to our own large body of American Christians. In the churches, originally built by the white Canadians, the presence of colored persons, promiscuously seated, elicited no comment whatsoever. Toronto seemed to her a beautiful vision of how things could be, 
with racial division transcended in the context of religious worship. She is saddened by the fact that a majority of Black parishioners in Canada attend predominantly or exclusively Black churches. The effect of this fact on the Black population, she says, is to perpetuate ignorance, both of their true position as British subjects and of the Christian religion in its purity. A hatred of white people, born of American oppression, is nurtured within the Black church when this feeling ought to have been left behind in the U.S. Ward also criticizes separate Black churches in Canada in his autobiography, allowing that these have been a necessity in the United States, but complaining that, even there, the result was that we were shut up to such poor ignorant teachings as our own preachers alone could give us, and our ignorance was greatly perpetuated thereby. In Canada, he sees no reason to maintain such institutions. Nor are churches the only form of self-imposed segregation opposed by Ward. His point is instead a general one. I do not agree with the policy of colored people settling themselves together in a particular part of a town or village. It is significant, however, how Ward chooses to defend this point. This is not because white people can help black people improve, but rather the reverse. Some of their white neighbors need to be taught even the first ideas of civilization by being near to enlightened, progressive colored people, such as are not few in Canada. Integration is facilitated by the greater freedom for social interaction across racial lines in Canada and is a powerful tool for defeating Negro hate. After all, he writes, you can better teach by intermingling than isolation to those who deny the Negro's capacity what he can do. Finally, for a very different perspective on Canada, let's turn back to Martin Delaney. In his famous 1854 speech, Political Destiny of the Colored Race on the American Continent, he sees Canada as a kind of second-best option for emigration, after the Caribbean or Central and South America. For one thing, he has a foreboding that, according to political tendency, the Canadas, as all British America, at no very distant day are destined to come into the United States. He recognizes that his prediction could turn out to be wrong, which is nice given that as it turned out he was, you know, wrong. More decisive, though, is that black people are unlikely ever to have political power in Canada. The odds are against us, because the ruling element there, as in the United States, is and ever must be white. The population now standing in all British America, two and a half millions of whites to but 40,000 of the black race, the difference being 11 times greater than in the United States, so that colored people might never hope for anything more than to exist politically by mere sufferance, occupying a secondary position to the whites of the Canadas. So, while a Canadian announcing a strategy will say, I have a plan, eh? Delaney sees Canada only as plan B. Near the end of his speech, he admits that Canada could be a good choice if moving to the Americas proves unworkable. Should anything occur to prevent a successful emigration to the South, Central, South America, and the West Indies, we have no hesitancy, rather than remain in the United States, the merest subordinates and serviles of the whites, should the Canadas still continue separate in their political relations from this country, to recommend to the great body of our people to remove to Canada West, where being politically equal to the whites, physically united with each other by a concentration of strength, when worse comes to worse, we may be found not as a scattered, weak, and impotent people, as we are now separated from each other throughout the Union, but a united and powerful body of free men, mighty in politics, and terrible in any conflict which might ensue in the event of an attempt at the disturbance of our political relations 
domestic repose, and peaceful firesides. Here we see a distinctively nationalist take on the goal of emigration, which was absent in Shad and Ward. For Delaney, Canada did not offer the chance to construct a post-racial utopia. Rather, political equality there would open space for building up black strength and organization. As we know, Delaney did indeed move to Canada, but then came back to the United States at the time of the Civil War. So too did Shad, who worked as a recruitment agent for the Union Army. After the war, she moved to Washington, D.C., began working as a teacher and then pursuing a law degree, becoming only the second black woman to attain such a degree. But not all of the Shads returned to the United States. Some stayed in Ontario, and among those living today, the Canadian historian Adrienne Shad has spoken with pride about being descended from one of Mary Ann Shad's brothers. Shad left a mark on Canadian history that has not been forgotten. In our next episode, we will consider the mark left by yet another African-American figure who spent time living outside the United States. Alexander Crummel, as we mentioned in the episode on Henry Highland Garnett, dedicated a good chunk of his life to Liberia. He was an intellectual leader of uncommon depth and influence who sought to put black people in Africa and America on a pathway towards what he understood to be the highest forms of civilization. It would be simply uncivilized, dare we say even impolite, if you did not join us next time to hear about Alexander Crummel here on The History of Africana Philosophy. I'm gonna tell God